Well, we concluded our study of the Ten Commandments last week, and so this morning we come to chapter 23 in the book of Exodus as we continue our journey uh, through the entirety of this book. Now, chapters 21 through 23 are commonly called the Book of the Covenant, and that's because the laws that are laid out in these three chapters are the civil code of Israel. In other words, these laws interpret the Ten Commandments that we just studied over the last many weeks into a set of specific laws for the people of Israel in their immediate historical and cultural context. And so while these laws are specific to the nation of Israel uh, and to their time and that age, yet there's plenty that we can learn, very clear principles that span the ages that apply to us even in our current context here in 2018. And so we need to keep that in mind and understanding this context as we approach this passage this morning. So as we do so, let me pray for us as we come before the Lord and enter and look at His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, one who stands here as a sinner, but only clothed in the righteousness of Christ because of all that You have done, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, as we come to your word, may we truly experience what we have just sung, that we would learn to trust you more as we see the gospel illumined in our hearts more today. Lord, would you shake us, many of us from our slumber, and Lord, would you remove many of our indifferences to think that you will act and even desire to bring change in our lives. So this morning, would you speak into all those areas where we doubt, where we fear, where we don't trust you? Would you give us expectation? Expectation that this word is powerful enough to change even the coldest of hearts. But we're asking you to do that. And when we see you do that in our lives and collectively as a body, we will praise you and give you the honor and glory for it will only be because of your spirit's power working in our lives. So come now, come in great power, we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, last year our family uh, went out west on a snow skiing trip, and as Jessica and I kind of prepared our family to go skiing, we kind of told them that it was important to listen to us, and we kind of laid out some of the things that were going to have to happen in order for us to have a great trip together that they were going to have to layer up as we went skiing because even though they may not feel cold in the moment, it gets cold as you go higher on the mountain. I told them they had to wear sunscreen on their face so they didn't get burned because of the higher altitude as well as drinking a lot of water to stay hydrated. And we told them they needed to get their sleep at night and go to bed when we asked them because you get really tired spending the day out on the mountain skiing. And we said they need to stay close to us while they skied so they didn't get lost. And there's a story in that whole rule there, but I'll save that for another time. But we said if you follow these, these rules, these things we're asking you to do, we're going to have a blast. It's going to be fun. But if we didn't, then things, this trip would probably not be as fun as it could be. You're going to be tired and irritable if you don't go to sleep. You might get hurt on the ski slopes. Mom and dad might be ornery and irritable because of lack of sleep and dealing with kids that didn't get sleep as well. But in our telling our kids that we were going on this trip, it was good news. It was exciting for all of us, right? We were taking them on this trip, not because they earned it or because they deserved it in any way, but because we wanted to spend time with one another. 
But we also laid out some things that needed to be followed. And we weren't telling them, okay, you need to do these things that we're telling you so that you'll experience our love. But we weren't telling you these things because we love you and we want what's best for you. And so that this trip could be enjoyable to the fullest extent. Well, similarly, this is what's going on in this passage. Israel's going to the land that God has promised his people, the land of Canaan. He's gifted them salvation and bringing them out of slavery under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And now he says, you're about to enter into this glorious land. But he says, I want you to obey these laws, these rules that I'm giving you, so that you can enjoy this land that I'm about to let you experience to the fullest extent possible. Now, Israel, in a short amount of time, still having the law, as we've just studied over the past many weeks, ringing in their ears as if they're still at the base of Mount Sinai, they will violate every one of these commands that we read this morning and look at. And so it's important, God knows this, to reiterate to them the importance of obedience to himself and the covenant that he's made with his people. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to study this passage By investigating three points, first we're going to consider the costly call to live in obedience to God. And then secondly, we'll examine God's warnings against living in disobedience. And finally, we'll study the promised blessings for living in obedience to God. Ever since Genesis 12, when God made a covenant with Abraham... God has been promising to bring his people into this land. And he says, once I bring you into this land, I'm going to drive out the inhabitants that are in this land currently. And it will be yours to enjoy all by yourself. And what we see in this passage, and what we see throughout the pages of Scripture, is that God is faithful to complete what he starts. He doesn't leave anything undone. What he says he will do, he will accomplish. And so in making good on this promise that was made years earlier to Abraham, God sends an angel to lead his people into this land that he was giving to them. Look at verse 20. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. He says, Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. God calls Israel to obedience by instructing them to pay attention to this angel's voice. He's not merely calling them to follow a set of abstract laws because God's law was always personal because it was being given by a personal God to his people. And so God was calling Israel to be obedient to this personal being, this angel that he was going to lead them so that they could experience this land in abundance. Now parents, when you leave your children home alone, typically... You leave a note, right, with them with all several different pieces of information, maybe emergency numbers that you want to have them call if there's a problem while you're gone, or maybe what snacks they're able to have and snacks they're not able to have, or what bedtime they have, or the chores you want them to do. And so these rules, these laws, so to speak, are written on a sticky note, but they're more than just the sticky note that they're written on. Because these rules are given from mom or dad or from grandma or grandpa out of love for the child and what they want, what's best for them. And so in the same way, God is reminding his people by calling them to obedience to this angel that he's sending before them. The law that he sets forth comes from a relationship. There's a foundation there in him giving these laws. And so it comes from this relationship that he calls them to obedience and covenant fidelity. 
You may be wondering, who is this angel that we've read about that is going to lead them? Well, this angel is different from the other created angels that we might read about in the Scriptures. All right, some people uh, said that this is a reference to Moses or to Joshua. But we see in verse 22, excuse me, verse 21, that this angel has divine attributes. He has the power to forgive sin. And there's only one who has the power to forgive sin. And so this angel is identified with God, with Yahweh. And so throughout this section, we see this interchanging of pronouns of he and I, speaking of what God will do and what the angel will do. But they're interchangeable throughout this passage. And so in some strange, mysterious way, this angel is a form of God's manifestation. Many believe it's the pre-incarnated Christ. He's a reflection of and an extension of the Lord's presence. On one hand, he's distinguished from God, but yet on the other hand, he has uniquely divine attributes. If we go back to Exodus chapter 3, we remember Moses and the burning bush. And Moses, before this bush, there is a flame inside the bush that's not burning the bush up, and it's speaking to him. And Moses, again, in some mysterious way, realizes that God is speaking to him. Because this angel, God's name and his authority is with this angel as he speaks to Moses. And so God's making the point that he is with his people to do what he says he will do. Right? He was providing them with his presence through this angel to lead them. And so as they wandered through the wilderness, trekking out to this promised land, they would have the huge cloud with them and the fiery pillar uh, with them through the night to lead them. And his presence was to be a comfort to them. They could see his presence and feel and know his presence. They weren't going at this journey alone. But God makes this point very clear. He says, as the angel leads you, you listen to him and obey me. God knew the temptations that lie ahead for Israel. And so he exhorts them to obedience throughout this journey. And we come to verse 24, we see how God's call to obedience is specifically applied as they enter into this promised land. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. Now the land in which they were entering into was filled with unbelieving pagan idol worshipers. There were, as it was common in the ancient Near East, there were pillars, there were statues, there were altars to various gods all throughout the land. And knowing the temptation... God calls Israel to take an active role as they enter into this land to destroy anything and everything that was dishonoring to God. See, God knew that the people were going to be tempted to do one of two things if they didn't destroy these idols. They would come in and see them and say, well, you know, they're already there, no big deal, we just won't fool with them. Or they might say, well, they're already here, so we'll just sacrifice and offer to our God. Because these idols were normal to them. It was in everyday life and culture for them. They seen them. And he knew the temptation. And so he says, no, I don't want you to do what they do. Remove every one of them. Tear them down. Get rid of them. Well, while we're not tempted with literal altars and statues to gods of an everyday life for us, like Israel was, There's no less common, ordinary, often good things that we're tempted to pervert and to twist to give our affections to and our loyalties to and worship 
that we make idols in our own lives. This is how idolatry usually works. It takes something that's ordinary and what seems essential and makes us feel like we can't do without it. Or we can't be on the outside of what other people have or what they're doing. And so we crave and long for it too. And whatever these idols may be in our lives, they can become ultimate and then ultimately leave us in bondage. And so God knows this. And so he calls Israel and he calls each one of us this morning to costly obedience that will involve rejecting and foregoing things that are accepted in culture that are dishonoring to him. See, being distinct and different from the world in which we live is not an easy thing to do. If you've read the news this past week, you know we're in the minority. And it's getting harder and harder to stand upon the Word of God and live it out actively in our lives. And God realizes it's challenging to be different and set apart. But look at what he says in verse 30. He says, little by little, I will drive them, the inhabitants of the land, out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. If you're in Christ this morning, you know the tension. We talked about it earlier. That exists between knowing how we are called to live and the temptations to give into and to buy into the things that this world has to offer us. We experience it daily. Each one of us longs for our sin struggles to be done instantaneously. Our laziness to be done away with. Our struggle with lying, with gossip, bitterness, anger, lust, whatever sins it may be. If we could just snap our fingers and have it gone instantly, we would. But that's typically not how it works. Rarely, if ever, have we woken up in the morning no longer struggling from something that we struggled with for quite some time before. It's because overcoming sin in our lives is a process. It's a process that happens throughout the entirety of our lives. As we submit to the Holy Spirit and His power and walk in obedience and work out our salvation to use Paul's language in Philippians 2. It's a process, though, that's wrought full of ups, downs, setbacks, failures. But God promises little by little, I'm conforming you to the image of my Son. And you can be assured of this if you are mine. And then we continue and see the main thrust of this call to obedience in verse 25. God says, you shall serve the Lord your God. This is a call to forsake all other masters, all the idols, all the things that we chase after, longing for satisfaction and hope and freedom. And he says, forsake all of those and entrust yourself to the true master who offers you and provides you with true freedom and lasting hope. But see, in forsaking our idols of our hearts, this exchange has to take place. And there are two ingredients that are necessary for this exchange to take place because we can't just get rid of one idol because another idol is going to pop right back up. Because as John Calvin so famously says, our hearts are idol-making factories, constantly producing them one after the other. So there has to be an exchange which involves repentance and worship. That we have to repent by acknowledging our willful disobedience of God and chasing after other things than himself. And those things we set our affections upon. And we have to turn from those things and turn to the God who has redeemed us to himself. And then as we see his redemption work in our lives, then we can begin to worship him whom our hearts were designed to do so.
but it's hard and costly because it's not popular and it's not always fun. Next, God warns his people against living in disobedience. Verse 32, God says, you shall, not make, you shall make no covenant with them, with the inhabitants and their gods. Children, a covenant is just an agreement, a contract, a bond between two parties. And in the Bible, we see God making various covenants with different people. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, God makes a covenant with Adam. We see Adam doesn't keep his part of the requirement in obedience. He partakes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so he's kicked out of the garden. And then later in Genesis 6, we see the covenant with Noah as God took Noah and his family. And he made a promise and said, I will never flood the earth again and destroy it. And he gave this covenant sign of the rainbow to assure them that he would keep his promise. And as we mentioned earlier, Genesis 12, we see God making this covenant with Abraham. And he promises him that he will give him a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. And they would have a land for their possession. And that they would be blessed by God and he would be their God but they would also be a blessing to the nations around them. And we see this covenant being passed down to his son Isaac and to Jacob and to his 12 sons and now to the nation of Israel as we see in the book of Exodus. See, it's important for us to understand that unlike a covenant made with two equal people, like in a marriage with a a bride and a groom, as they covenant together, the covenant made with God and Abraham was a unilateral covenant. It was made out of God's grace, his sheer mercy to Abraham. Deuteronomy 7, we're told that God didn't choose Israel because they were all powerful or they were special in any way. He chose them because he set his love upon them and nothing that they did to earn it. The covenants in the ancient Near East, they followed this pattern. It was a typical pattern for uh, the day and the way they made those covenants. It was usually between two kings. And so one king, a powerful king, named a suzerain, he would make a covenant with a lesser, more subservient king called a vassal king. And so the suzerain king would lay out the stipulations of the covenant. And the vassal would agree to them. And then after the stipulations were made, there would be blessings for covenant faithfulness, for obedience. But then he would also write down curses that the vassal king and his nation would incur if they weren't obedient to the stipulations laid out. So for example, he may say, if you'll provide us with you know, some of your men we will f- to fight with us for our enemies, then we'll protect you. But if you don't, then we're going to take some of your crops or we'll take some of your people to be our own. And we see this played out, this pattern. If you go to Leviticus 26, you see even reading in the headings, it says blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so it's important to understand the conditionality of the covenant that God's made with his people. Look at verse 22. There's this if-then conditionality emphasized. God says, but if... You carefully obey his voice, the angel's voice, and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. Obedience wasn't a suggestion for Israel. There was no other option. God says, if you do this and remain faithful to me, I will take care of you. I will drive your enemies out. But what's clearly implied in this verse is that Israel, if you rebel against the Lord... If you turn your back on the Lord, the God of your salvation, then you will experience judgment. And it will come upon you. And later in Exodus 34, we read, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God's very serious about keeping His covenant promise. And He's also very serious about us who have entered into this 
with him to keep our covenant faithfulness and obedience to the Lord and all that he commands us. And God warns Israel not to make any kind of agreements with the inhabitants of the land because he's setting Israel apart because they were to reflect his glory to the nations around them. And so when Israel indulges in the pagan practices or when we indulge in the common things of our culture that seem good and right but yet are dishonoring to God, we are not displaying this set-apartness. We're not displaying His glory the way He's called us to. God further warns in verse 33, He says, They shall not, the inhabitants, not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God knew what would happen. Compromises would start small, and they would lead to greater compromises. It's the same way it happens with us today. And so He knew... And so he told them and warned them, not allow them to stay in the land. Now that word snare in the context is talking about a trap for like a small animal, for a a rodent or something. I remember when we moved into our our house several years ago, uh, we had some inhabitants that were not happy that we moved into the house. And so I went and bought some, you know, little glue traps from Lowe's and, and put one behind the couch. And sure enough, the next morning, I had a little friend. He'd gotten his little legs stuck on just the corner of the glue uh, trap there. And he tried so hard to get out that he broke his little leg, and ultimately it was his demise, and he didn't live with us anymore. Just that little bitty glue trap, a little bit of glue, he got caught in. Every day you and I are tempted by little snares, little things trying to lure us in, trying to trap us. It's usually not the big snares that we have such problems with. We can kind of see those things coming. It's the small, little, subtle things that end up getting us. These are the sinful ways of the world that over time we begin justifying, we begin buying into because they're accepted in our culture. You begin overcharging your customers and using deception in your business practices because other people are doing it and they're profiting from it. And it works. Maybe you take things, money or other things from your workplace that are not for, your, for you to take. Or maybe we begin allowing or uh, giving our children things that their friends have, but yet they're dishonoring to God, and we don't want them to feel you know, on the outside, and so we buy into it and we give them to them. Or maybe you start in a relationship with a non-believer of the opposite sex that leads to a dating relationship, and then you compromise on your purity from your past convictions. Or maybe you take good things, good things and you distort them, and you neglect the means of grace that God calls us to, to nourish our souls. And so instead of reading God's word and investing in your relationship with him, you decide, I'll just binge on a series of Netflix. Or you take money that God has entrusted to you, and you overspend on your own comforts and your own pleasures. One theologian explains how easy it is for the believer to get trapped in these snares of the world. He's discussing our pursuit of holiness and our fight to remain pure and honoring God in what we do. And listen to what he says. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate towards godliness, towards prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. He says, we drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. 
We drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've somehow escaped legalism. And we slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. The drift is oh so subtle. And just like a ship that gets off course just by one degree, it leads us down a path, not to our intended destination, but to destruction. Where might you be slowly drifting, becoming ensnared by the practices and ideas of our world? Where are areas where you have succumbed to and given into because they're common and you've never even given thought as to whether they dishonor your Savior? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, we have to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, to the gospel that we've received, lest we drift away from it. We have to ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in us those ways that we have dishonored God, that we've compromised with the world, that we've made idols of good, bad, and indifferent things, putting them above our Savior. See, it's so easy to buy into the ways of the world because sin is made to look normal in our culture. And living a life of obedience and striving towards holiness, that's made to look weird. So it's a daily battle that we have to engage in to strive to live in a manner that is worthy and honoring to the one that we claim our allegiance to. If you're a parent, you often give your children warnings and you call them to obedience and these warnings and exhortations to obedience are out of love for your children, as we said earlier. The obedience you're calling them to is not so they can earn anything from you. You already love them. You bestow that upon them. You delight in them, but you want what is best for them and want to experience the fullness of life for them. It's out of your wisdom for them that you set parameters and give them warnings. But children often see these warnings as restrictive, don't they? Even detrimental to them. But as a parent, you know that obedience is best and is good for them. In the same way God doesn't love us based on anything that we do, He knows what's best for us, and so He calls us to obedience in his word, which can enable us to experience the fullness of intimacy and his immense love that he has for us as his children. Lastly, let's explore the promised blessings for living in obedience to God. Israel's ability to enjoy these promised blessings depended on them keeping God's law. All right, notice the I will statements throughout these 15 verses here. God says, I will guide you, I will guard you, I will give you everything that you need as you enter into the land. Verse 20, God gives his greatest promise. He says, I'm going to be with you. You're going to have my presence with you. And then in verses 25 through 27, he promises to give the people all that they need in food, and water, and health, and childbearing. If Israel remained faithful and obedient to God and all that he commanded, they would know the favor of God better than all the other nations around them. And know the fruitfulness and the bountiful blessings that he was giving to them. He also promises in verse 31 to drive out the inhabitants and he was going to establish their borders. Right from the desert to the river. 
In other words, from the East Coast to the West Coast, if we think of it in our terms. A defined, established land that was theirs to enjoy. In order to experience, though, these rich blessings, Israel's requirement was to pay attention and listen to the Lord. They were to destroy the idols and worship Him alone. They were to drive out all the inhabitants so they wouldn't be led into sin. And if they did these things, they would realize God's promises and experience His blessings and His delight over them. If we continue to read throughout the Scriptures, we know that Israel forfeited experiencing the fullness of these blessings, and they were sent into exile away from this land that God had given them. Their sinfulness of their own hearts and the brokenness of the world around them prohibited them from tasting and knowing the goodness of God's full blessings. But God doesn't fail to keep His side of the bargain. If we read in Isaiah 43, He makes this promise and reiterates it once again to them. Even though you have rebelled against Me, He says, I will be with you. The waves are not going to overcome you. The fire is not going to burn you. For I am the Lord your God. I'm your Savior. I will be with you and remain faithful to you. God's promise came to fruition when Christ's Son came. Right? Not as an angel, not as a manifestation, but came in human form like one of us. As the writer of Hebrews says, he says, You made him, made Christ to be a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Christ came in a real body, with a real soul, and real obedience to the fullest extent of the law. And Christ has gone before us just as the angel went before Israel. But Christ didn't go before us just blazing a trail and a path. He says, we heard earlier, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. Jesus went before us in being obedient to the law where we failed just like Israel. He earned our merit of righteousness and holiness that we could never earn and we so desperately needed. He went before us as he was plunged into the depths, separated from his Father, as our guilt and our shame and our sin was upon him at the cross that he did not deserve in any way so that we could be called sons and daughters. He went before us in the resurrection as he was the first fruits on the third day rising from the dead, overcoming death and defeating it once and for all. And he went before us in his ascension as he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, waiting to return one day. From John 14 that we read earlier, Jesus knew his disciples were terrified that he was going to be leaving. And so he says to them, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be with me. Christ is the forerunner who's gone before us to prepare a place for his beloved children. He's gone before us in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And as the writer of Hebrews says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Christ entered into the Holy of Holies where we will one day stand with him in all his glory, forever 
and ever. See, in the new covenant, we have the presence of God, who is Christ, indwelling our hearts. He's our counselor, he's our teacher, he's our husband, he's our forerunner. Set your eyes upon him, the one who has set the course and run the race to the finish. Don't settle for cheap imitations that this world offers us. Don't go looking for something to try to satisfy the cravings of your soul. And as the allurement of the created thing tries to lure us away from Christ and fascinate us and capture our hearts and ultimately enslave us, cling to the promises of the gospel of the one who's laid claim to your heart. See, the most loving thing that God can do in our lives is to expose, bring to the surface, and then utterly destroy our idols so that we no longer bow down to them and give them our worship and our affection and our love. We can't look to any created thing and expect it to do and be for us what only our Creator can be. We have to stop looking for the perfect counselor who's going to give us that silver bullet that's going to unlock the key to our happiness in our life and get rid of our problems. We already have the great counselor. And all his blessings and tools are at our disposal. We have to stop searching for that new relationship that we think is going to satisfy us and bring us contentment. Whether that's with a new wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or that new car or that new material possession or that new experience that we can have, that new pleasure that we think is going to give us our best life right now. We have to rest and trust in the often slow but sure progression of God's change in our lives as the Spirit works in and through us to bring about this change that we also desire. See, the trajectory of the Christian life is suffering now, glory later. It's the pattern of Christ in His life. He's the forerunner. He's gone before us. We shouldn't expect anything different. The trials of this life, the temptations that we face, we have to realize they are accompanied with grand promises that far outweigh anything that Israel could experience under the old covenant with Moses. You will come into the land and you will experience abundance. No. That was just a foreshadowing of the land that we will inherit one day in the new heavens and new earth. Our promises are more definite and more secure in Christ. We have an inheritance in heaven. That has been purchased for us by our Savior. That's being kept secure for us. And this inheritance is void of any struggle that you and I experience right now in this life. It's void of chasing after idols. It's void of food addictions and constantly comparing ourselves and the way we look to others. It's void of the insecurities of what, wondering about it, what everybody else thinks about us every second of the day and any interaction that we have with others. It's void of depression, of anxiety, of loneliness, of physical pain reminding us of the frailty of our bodies. No, we will experience unhindered, uninterrupted, everlasting joy in the presence of our Savior. Now you may say that doesn't sound all that exciting and all that glorious right now. That's because we can't even imagine it because of the sinful nature of our hearts and the brokenness of this world. 
But let me assure you and myself this morning, that is all we will ever need, and we will enjoy that to the fullest in his presence, in the midst of his glory. So today, our Savior comes to us as one who suffered and overcome sin, Satan, and death, and he's now interceding for us on our behalf. And Christ says to us, pay close attention to me. I'm the object of your faith. Nothing in this world can satisfy you like I can. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. I will come again and will take you to be with myself where I will be and you may also be. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this this morning? Set your eyes upon Christ and obey his commands as they come to you day in and day out. And know that what he puts in your path is what is best for you and what is ultimately good. Don't reject his yoke. You can trust him because he's made promises and he will keep them. And he says, my yoke is gentle and I'm lowly in heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us eyes to see the ways that we long and pine after other things than yourself? Would you surface the many idols that we have in our lives that we want to justify them and push them off as other things that are acceptable? Would you allow us to see the ugliness of them so that we might replace them with the only one who can truly satisfy and give us the hope that we long for? And Lord, may we say with the psalmist or turn our eyes from the ways of this world and let us love your law. Let us delight in your commands for we know that it will bring the abundance of blessings that you have promised us, that you have given to us freely in Christ and we can enjoy those especially to their fullest extent on that day when you return. So give us confidence in your Spirit's work in our lives to not only put to death our idols, but to also stand against a culture that is constantly against you and to point people to the one true God. Oh, we ask that you would do this. In the matchless name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.